Chapter Three, Part One of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Three, Mary Stuart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Crimes, Volume Three, Mary Stuart, by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter Three, Part One. Directly she was delivered, Mary sent for James Melville, her usual envoy to Elizabeth and charged him to convey this news to the Queen of England, and to beg her to be godmother to the royal child at the same time. On arriving in London, Melville immediately presented himself at the palace, but as there was a court ball, he could not see the Queen, and contented himself with making known the reason for his journey to the minister Cecil, and with begging him to ask his mistress for an audience next day. Elizabeth was dancing in a quadrille at the moment when Cecil, approaching her, said in a low voice, mary queen of scotland has just given birth to a son at these words she grew frightfully pale and looking about her with a bewildered air and as if she were about to faint she leaned against an armchair then soon not being able to stand upright she sat down threw back her head and plunged into a mournful reverie then one of the ladies of her court breaking through the circle which had formed round the queen approached her ill-at-eased and asked her of what she was thinking so sadly ah madam elizabeth replied impatiently do you not know that mary stuart has given birth to a son while i am but a barren stock who will die without offspring yet elizabeth was too good a politician despite her liability to be carried away by a first impulse to compromise herself by a longer display of her grief the ball was not discontinued on that account and the interrupted quadrille was resumed and finished the next day melville had his audience Elizabeth received him to perfection, assuring him of all the pleasure that the news he brought had caused her, and which, he said, had cured her of a complaint from which she had suffered for a fortnight. Melville replied that his mistress had hastened to acquaint her with her joy, knowing that she had no better friend, but he added that this joy had nearly cost Mary her life, so grievous had been her confinement. As he was returning to this point for the third time, with the object of still further increasing the Queen of England's dislike to marriage, be easy melville elizabeth assured him you need not insist upon it i shall never marry my kingdom takes the place of a husband for me and my subjects are my children when i am dead i wish graven on my tombstone here lies elizabeth who reigned so many years and who died a virgin melville availed himself of this opportunity to remind elizabeth of the desire she had shown to see mary three or four years before but elizabeth said besides her country's affairs which necessitated her presence in the heart of her possessions she did not care after all she had heard said of her rival's beauty to expose herself to a comparison disadvantageous to her pride she contented herself then with choosing as a proxy the earl of bedford who set out with several other noblemen for stirling castle where the young prince was christened with great pomp and received the names of charles james it was remarked that darnley did not appear at this ceremony and that his absence seemed to scandalise greatly the queen of england's envoy on the contrary james hepburn earl of bothwell had the most important place there this was because since the evening when bothwell at mary's cries had run to oppose the murder of rizzio he had made great way in the queen's favour to her party he himself appeared to be really attached to the exclusion of the two others the kings and the earl of murray's bothwell was already thirty-five years old head of the powerful family of Hepburn, which had great influence in East Lothian and the country of Berwick, 
the rest violent rough given to every kind of debauchery and capable of anything to satisfy an ambition which he did not even give himself the trouble to hide in his youth he had been reputed courageous but for long he had had no serious opportunity to draw the sword if the king's authority had been shaken by rizzio's influence it was entirely upset by bothwell's the great nobles following the favourite's example no longer rose in the presence of darnley and ceased little by little to treat him as their equal his retinue was cut down his silver plate taken from him and some officers who remained about him made him buy their services with the most bitter vexations as for the queen she no longer even took the trouble to conceal her dislike for him avoiding him without consideration to such a degree that one day when she had gone with bothwell to elway she left there again immediately because darnley came to join her the king however still had patience but a fresh imprudence of mary's at last led to the terrible catastrophe that since the queen's liaison with bothwell some had already foreseen towards the end of the month of october fifteen sixty six while the queen was holding a court of justice at jedburgh it was announced to her that bothwell in trying to seize a malefactor called john elliot of park had been badly wounded in the hand the queen who was about to attend the council immediately postponed the sitting till next day and having ordered a horse to be saddled she set out for hermitage castle where bothwell was living and covered the distance at a stretch although it was twenty miles and she had to go across woods marshes and rivers then having remained some hours tete-a-tete -tete with him she set out again with the same speed for jedburgh to which she returned in the night although this proceeding had made a great deal of talk which was inflamed still more by the queen's enemies who chiefly belonged to the reformed religion darnley did not hear of it till nearly two months afterwards that is to say when bothwell completely recovered returned with the queen to edinburgh then darnley thought that he ought not to put up any longer with such humiliations but as since his treason to his accomplices he had not found in all scotland a noble who would have drawn the sword for him he resolved to go and seek the earl of lennox his father hoping that through his influence he could rally the malcontents of whom there were a great number since bothwell had been in favour unfortunately darnley indiscreet and imprudent as usual confined his plan to some of his officers who warned bothwell of their master's intention bothwell did not seem to oppose the journey in any way but darnley was scarcely a mile from edinburgh when he felt violent pains none the less he continued his road and arrived very ill at glasgow he immediately sent for a celebrated doctor called james abranetz who found his body covered with pimples and declared without any hesitation that he had been poisoned however others among them walter scott state that this illness was nothing else than smallpox whatever it may have been the queen in the presence of the danger her husband ran appeared to forget her resentment and at the risk of what might prove troublesome to herself she went to darnley after sending her doctor in advance it is true that if one is to believe in the following letters dated from glasgow which mary is accused of having written to bothwell she knew the illness with which he was attacked too well to fear infection as these letters are little known and seem to us very singular we transcribe them here later we shall tell how they fell into the power of the confederate lords and from their hands passed into elizabeth who quite delighted cried on receiving them god's death then i hold her life and honour in my hands first letter when i set out from the place where i had left my heart judge in what a condition i was poor body without a soul besides during the whole of dinner i have not spoken to any one and no one has dared to approach me 
for it was easy to see that there was something amiss. When I arrived within a league of the town, the Earl of Lennox sent me one of his gentlemen to make me his compliments, and to excuse himself for not having come in person. He has caused me to be informed, moreover, that he did not dare to present himself before me after the reprimand that I gave Cunningham. This gentleman begged me, as if of his own accord, to examine his master's conduct, to ascertain if my suspicions were well founded. I have replied to him that fear was an incurable disease, that the Earl of Lennox would not be so agitated if his conscience reproached him with nothing, and that if some hasty words had escaped me, they were but just reprisals for the letter he had written me. None of the inhabitants visited me, which makes me think they are all in his interests. Besides, they speak of him very favourably, as well as of his son. The king sent for Joachim yesterday, and asked him why I did not lodge with him, adding that my presence would soon cure him, and asked me also with what object I had come, if it were to be reconciled with him, if you he were here, if I had taken Paris and Gilbert as secretaries, and if I were still resolved to dismiss Joseph. I do not know if you have given him such accurate information. There is nothing, down to the marriage of Sebastian, with which he has not made himself acquainted. I have asked him the meaning of one of his letters, in which he complains of the cruelty of certain people. He replied that he was stricken, but that my presence caused him so much joy that he thought he should die of it. He reproached me several times for being dreamy. I left him to go to supper. He begged me to return. I went back. Then he told me the story of his illness, and that he wished to make a will leaving me everything, adding that I was a little the cause of his trouble, and that he attributed it to my coldness. You ask me, added he, who are the people of whom I complain? It is of you, cruel one, of you, whom I have never been able to appease by my tears and my repentance. I know that I have offended you, but not on the matter that you reproach me with. I have also offended some of your subjects, but that you have forgiven me. I am young, and you say that I always relapse into my faults, but cannot a young man like me, destitute of experience, gain it also, break his promises, repent directly, and in time improve, if you will forgive me yet once more, I will promise to offend you never again. All the favour I ask of you is that we should live together like husband and wife, to have but one bed and one board. If you are inflexible, I shall never rise again from here. I entreat you, tell me your decision. God alone knows what I suffer, and that because I occupy myself with you only, because I love and adore only you. If I have offended you sometimes, you must bear the reproach, for when someone offends me, if it were granted me to complain to you, I should not confide my griefs to others, but when we are on bad terms, I am obliged to keep them to myself, and that maddens me. He then urged me strongly to stay with him and lodge in his house, but I excused myself, and replied that he ought to be purged, and that he could not be conveniently at Glasgow. Then he told me that he knew I had brought a letter for him, but that he would have preferred to make the journey with me. He believed, I think, that I meant to send him to some prison. I replied that I should take him to Craig Miller, that he would find doctors there, that I should remain near him, and that we should be within reach of seeing my son. He has answered that he will go where I wish to take him, provided that I grant him what he has asked. He does not, however, wish to be seen by anyone. He has told me more than a hundred pretty things that I cannot repeat to you, and at which you yourself would be surprised. He does not want to let me go. He wanted to make me sit up with him all night. As for me, I pretended to believe everything, and I seemed to interest myself really in him. 
Besides, I have never seen him so small and humble, and if I had not known how easily his heart overflows, and how mine is impervious to every other arrow than those with which you have wounded it, I believe that I should have allowed myself to soften. But lest that should alarm you, I would die rather than give up what I have promised you. As for you, be sure to act in the same way towards those traitors who will do all they can to separate you from me. I believe that all those people have been cast in the same mould. This one always has a tear in his eyes. He bows down before everyone, from the greatest to the smallest. He wishes to interest them in his favour, and make himself pitied. His father threw up blood today through the nose and mouth. Think what those symptoms mean. I have not seen him yet, for he keeps to the house. The king wants me to feed him myself. He won't eat unless I do. But whatever I may do, he will be deceived by it no more than I shall be deceiving myself. We are united, you and I, to two kinds of very detestable people. Mary means Miss Huntley, Bothwell's wife, whom he repudiated at the king's death to marry the queen. That hell may sever these knots, then, and that heaven may form better ones, that nothing can break, that it may make of us the most tender and faithful couple that ever was, there is the profession of faith in which I would die. Excuse my scrawl, you must guess more than the half of it, but I know no help for this. I am obliged to write to you hastily while everyone is asleep here, but be easy. I take infinite pleasure in my watch, for I cannot sleep like the others, not being able to sleep as I would like, that is to say, in your arms. I am going to get into bed, I shall finish my letter to-morrow. I have too many things to tell you, the night is too far advanced. Imagine my despair, it is to you I am writing, it is of myself that I converse with you, and I am obliged to make an end. I cannot prevent myself, however, from filling up hastily the rest of my paper. Cursed be the crazy creature who torments me so much. Were it not for him, I could talk to you of more agreeable things. He has not greatly changed, and yet he has taken a great deal of it. But he has nearly killed me with the fetid smell of his breath, for now he is still worse than your cousin's. You guess that this is a fresh reason for my not approaching him. On the contrary, I go away as far as I can, and sit on a chair at the foot of his bed. Let us see if I forget anything. His father's message on the road, the question about Joachim, the state of my house, the people of my suite, subject of my arrival, Joseph, conversation between him and me, his desire to please me and his repentance, the explanation of his letter, Mr. Livingstone. Ah, I was forgetting that. Yesterday Livingstone, during supper, told Durer in a low voice to drink to the health of one I knew well, and to beg me to do him the honour. After supper, as I was leaning on his shoulder near the fire, he said to me, Is it not true that there are visits very agreeable for those who pay them and those who receive them? But, however satisfied they seem with your arrival, I challenge their delights to equal the grief of one whom you have left alone to-day, and who will never be content till he sees you again. I asked him of whom he wished to speak to me. He then answered me by pressing my arm of one of those who have not followed you, and among those it is easy for you to guess of whom I want to speak. I have worked till two o'clock at the bracelet. I have enclosed a little key which is attached by two strings. It is not as well worked as I should like, but I have not had the time to make it better. I'll make you a finer one on the first occasion. Take care that it is not seen on you, for I have worked at it before everyone, and it would be recognised to a certainty. I always return, in spite of myself, to the frightful attempt that you advise. You compel me to concealments, and above all to treacheries that make me shudder. I would rather die, believe me, than do such things, for it makes my heart bleed. 
He does not want to follow me unless I promise him to have the self-same bed and board with him as before, and not to abandon him so often. If I consent to it, he says he will do all I wish, and will follow me everywhere, but he has begged me to put off my departure for two days. I pretended to agree to all he wishes, but I have told him not to speak of our reconciliation to any one, for fear it should make some lords uneasy. At last I shall take him everywhere I wish, alas. I've never deceived any one, but what would I not do to please you? Command, and whatever happens, I shall obey. But you see yourself, if one could not contrive some secret means in the shape of a remedy. He must purge himself at Craig Miller and take baths there. He'll be some days without going out. As far as I can see, he is very uneasy, but he has great trust in what I tell him. However, his confidence does not go so far as to allow him to open his mind to me. If you like, I will tell him everything. I can have no pleasure in deceiving someone who is trusting. However, it will be just as you wish. Do not esteem me the less for that. It is you advised it. No would vengeance have taken me so far. Sometimes he attacks me in a very sensitive place, and he touches me to the quick when he tells me that his crimes are known, but that every day greater ones are committed that one uselessly attempts to hide, since all crimes, whatsoever they may be, great or small, come to men's knowledge and form the common subject of their discourse. He adds sometimes, in speaking to me of Madame Durer, I wish her services may do you honour. He has assured me that many people thought, and that he himself, that I was not my own mistress. This is doubtless because I had rejected the conditions he offered me. Finally, it is certain that he is very uneasy about you-know-what, and that he even suspects that his life is aimed at. He is in despair whenever the conversation turns on you, Livingstone, and my brother. However, he says neither good nor ill of absent people, but, on the contrary, he always avoids speaking of them. His father keeps to the house. I have not seen him yet. A number of the Hamiltons are here, and accompany me everywhere. All the friends of the other one follow me each time I go to see him. He has begged me to be at his rising to-morrow. My messenger will tell you the rest. Burn my letter. There would be danger in keeping it. Besides, it is hardly worth the trouble, being filled only with dark thoughts. As for you, do not be offended if I am sad and uneasy to-day, that to please you I rise above honour, remorse, and dangers. Do not take in bad part what I tell you, and do not listen to the malicious explanations of your wife's brother. He is a knave whom you ought not to hear to the prejudice of the most tender and most faithful mistress that ever was. Above all, do not allow yourself to be moved by that woman. Her sham tears are nothing in comparison with the real tears that I shed, and with what love and constancy makes me suffer at succeeding her. It is for that alone that, in spite of myself, I betray all those who could cross my love. God have mercy on me, and send you all the prosperity that a humble and tender friend who awaits from you soon another reward wishes you. It is very late, but it is always with regret that I lay down my pen when I write to you. However, I shall not end my letter until I shall have kissed your hands. Forgive me that it is so ill-written. Perhaps I do so expressly that you may be obliged to re-read it several times. I have transcribed hastily what I have written down on my tablets, and my paper has given out. Remember, a tender friend, and write to her often. Love me as tenderly as I love you, and remember. Madame Durer's words. The English, his mother, the Earl of Argyll, the Earl of Bothwell, the Edinburgh dwelling. Second letter. It seems that you have forgotten me during your absence, so much the more that you had promised me, at setting out, to let me know in detail everything fresh that should happen. The hope of receiving your news was giving me almost as much delight as your return could have brought me. You have put it off longer than you promised me. As for me, although you do not write, I play my part always. I shall take him to Craig Miller on Monday, and he will spend the whole of Wednesday there. 
On that day I shall go to Edinburgh to be bled there, unless you arrange it otherwise, at least. He is more cheerful than usual, and he is better than ever. He says everything he can to persuade me that he loves me. He has a thousand attentions for me, and he anticipates me in everything, all that is so pleasant for me, that I never go to him but the pain in my side comes on again. His company weighs on me so much. If Paris brought me what I asked him, I should be soon cured. If you have not yet returned when I go you know where, write to me, I beg you, and tell me what you wish me to do, for if you do not manage things prudently, I foresee that the whole burden will fall on me. Look into everything and weigh the affair maturely. I send you my letter by Beaton, who will set out the day which has been assigned to Balfour. It only remains for me to beg you to inform me of your journey. Glasgow, this Saturday morning. Third letter. I stayed you know where longer than I should have done, if it had not been to get from him something that the bearer of these presents will tell you it was a good opportunity for covering up our designs. I have promised him to bring the person you know to-morrow. Look after the rest, if you think fit. Alas! I have failed in our agreement, for you have forbidden me to write to you, or to dispatch a messenger to you. However, I do not intend to offend you. If you knew with what fears I am agitated, you would not have for yourself so many doubts and suspicions, but I take them in good part. Persuaded as I am, they have no other cause than love, love that I esteem more than anything on earth. My feelings and my favours are to me sure warrants for that love, and answer to me for your heart. My trust is entire on this head, but explain yourself, I entreat you, and open your soul to me, otherwise I shall fear lest, by the fatality of my star, and by the too fortunate influence of the stars on woman less tender and less faithful than I, I may be supplanted in your heart as Medea was in Jason's, not that I wish to compare you to a lover as unfortunate as Jason, and to parallel myself with a monster like Medea, although you have enough influence over me to force me to resemble her each time our love exacts it, and that it concerns me to keep your heart, which belongs to me, and which belongs to me only for I name as belonging to me what I have purchased with the tender and constant love with which I have burned for you, a love more alive to-day than ever, and which will end only with my life, a love, in short, which makes me despise both the dangers and the remorse which will be perhaps its sad sequel. As the price of this sacrifice, I ask you but one favour, it is to remember a spot not far from here. I do not exact that you should keep your promise to-morrow, but I want to see you disperse your suspicions. I ask of God only one thing, it is that he should make you read my heart, which is less mine than yours, and that he should guard you from every ill, at least during my life. This life is dear to me only in so far as it pleases you, and as I please you myself. I am going to bed, adieu. Give me your news to-morrow morning, for I shall be uneasy till I have it. Like a bird escaped from its cage, or the turtle-dove which has lost her mate, I shall be alone, weeping your absence, short as it may be. This letter, happier than I, will go this evening where I cannot go, provided that the messenger does not find you asleep, as I fear. I have not dared to write it in the presence of Joseph, of Sebastian, and of Joachim, who had only just left me when I began it. Thus as one sees, and always supposing these letters to be genuine, Mary had conceived for Bothwell one of those mad passions, so much the stronger in the woman who are prey to them, than one the less understands what could have inspired them. Bothwell was no longer young, Bothwell was not handsome, and yet Mary sacrificed for him a young husband, who was considered one of the handsomest men of his century. It was like a kind of enchantment. 
Darnley, the sole obstacle to the union, had been already condemned for a long time, if not by Mary, at least by Bothwell. Then, as his strong constitution had conquered the poison, another kind of death was sought for. End of chapter 3, part 1